So good evening, everyone, and welcome to our Calvary Church evening service. I trust and pray that you are all well and you are coping. Um, I think we're sort of almost four weeks now into this crisis. And uh, I think at this time, we're, in some ways, we're getting used to this new way of doing things. But in other ways, we find it quite stressful. And we, we wonder how long will this go on for in common with everybody else. It's very important that we continue, isn't it, as Christians to, to have discipline in our lives and to still meet together in this way and still um, contact each other, still pray for each other and still to have some kind of routine in our lives and particularly those spiritual disciplines which help us maintain our faith and grow in our faith in these times. I wanted to read to you um, some verses or a verse in 1 Timothy chapter 6, which is really an amazing verse. And we can easily skip over these kinds of verses, but actually I want you to think about today that the potency and the, the profundity of these verses or this verse. This is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 to 16, and it's describing God. Paul describes who God is. He says, God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honour and might forever. Amen. When you, when you think about it, when you stop to consider what amazing truths these are about God, King of kings, the Lord of Lords, the ruler of the rulers of the earth. He alone is immortal. He lives in unapproachable light. I've chosen a song for us to sing which talks about the majesty and the power of God. And I invite you to sing with us. Be still. Be still for the presence of the Lord, the Holy One, is here. And let me just look that up for you. That can be found in your book, in your praise book. And it's number 566. But the words should also be attached to this audio recording or this video. So please sing along and worship the Lord with us.
Now, let's come before God in prayer. Let me lead you. Our great Lord and Father, we come before you this day and we thank you for the many wonderful things which your word tells us about your character and about your person and about your ways. And we rejoice in the glory of our God. Lord, you are not some feeble or weak God. You are not a God who is all too human in your attributes, but you are completely unique and you are worthy of the highest praise. You are worthy of adoration. You are, you are an awesome God, a God who inspires awe in your people, a God who is um, majestic, transcendent, glorious. Whatever other words we can, we can find to describe you, Lord, will not be enough to, to really do justice to who you are. We, we rejoice in the fact that you are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are Trinitarian God. Lord, this is not some human invention. This is what your word tells us. How that works, we don't understand, but we rejoice in that, that you are such a God and that your son, the Lord Jesus, became a human being, became a man and came to this world to save this world, to save us from our sins. How can God become man? How can God dwell amongst us? How can God die on a cross? And yet, Lord, your word tells us it is so. And we thank you for this amazing mystery. Lord, you see at this time, as usual, Lord, but even more so, we have many distractions, many cares, many worries. We pray as your people that you would help us to focus our hearts and minds upon you. Pray, Lord, you'd help us to cast our burdens upon you because you care for us. Pray that you would forgive us our sins. Lord, we thank you that we're not saved by keeping the law. We're saved by grace. And yet at the same time, Lord, we, we delight to do your will. But so often we fall short of that. And we, we know we do. And I, I know I do. We need your grace. We need your forgiveness. Please, will you, even tonight, put on our hearts, Lord, on our consciences an understanding of those things which we've done, which are not confessed which are not pleasing to you, and help us, Lord, to discard those things and turn away from them and repent, trust in you, receive your strength and mercy in our day of need. Pray for our church family, Lord. We thank you for each person that is connected with this church. We thank you for the memory of each one of them. We love them. They're precious to us. We do pray that in these days you would keep each one of us walking with you, Pray for those who are weak, who feel weak, who are struggling, who are burdened. We pray, Lord, you particularly would draw close to them. We do continue to pray, Lord, for our country, for our countries, for our leaders. We pray for, for great mercy for them. We pray that they would turn to you and realize, Lord, that there is, there is no salvation, true salvation, except in Jesus Christ. Pray that you'd give them wisdom for handling this crisis well. Help us to be gracious to them as well, Lord, and, and not uh, abuse them or mock them. 
but to show respect and to pray for them as you would have us do. We pray, Lord, for our families and loved ones and colleagues and friends who do not know you. We pray that you would turn many, many of them to you in these days, to your son, the Lord Jesus. Particularly want to pray for those, Lord, in our community who have financial problems and worries about work. We pray that you would meet their needs and supply their needs and help them. And I do pray as we come to your word that you would help me and help us, Lord, to understand rightly what your word is saying to us. We thank you so much, Father, for all the blessings that you've given us. Help us to be a grateful people and a joyful people, a people of hope. I pray for your Holy Spirit, Lord, to fill us anew tonight. Pray that the power of the Lord will be moving in this place, not in this physical place, Lord, but in our hearts as we worship you together. I particularly want to pray for the children of the church, Lord, but that you would bless them at this time and that you would help them also look to you and receive a blessing from you as they come and in their own, in their own simple way try to understand what's going on and make sense of it. I pray that you would reassure them and comfort them and they would know you better. So, Lord, I pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me encourage you, if you haven't taken part in our Wednesday prayer meeting online, to join us. If you wish, you can contact any of us. Um, you have the email for the church on our website, if you don't know it already, and you can contact us. And we'll make it possible for you to join our prayer meeting with us. We're resuming our studies in the Gospel of Matthew, and I invite you to turn with me to the 21st chapter of Matthew, and we shall be reading from verses 18 to 22. I should just point out that this, this account of this incident is also to be found, a parallel account is to be found in Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 11, which in some ways fleshes out some of the details of the story. So if you want to turn to that as well to compare it, then you're welcome to do so. But this is Matthew's account, Matthew 21, verses 18 to 22. Early in the morning, as he, Jesus, was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly? They asked. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. If you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the, into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Lord, we pray now you'd help us to understand your word. Give us wisdom, Lord, we pray, and discernment to understand what you may be saying to us. Amen. So today we're going to look at this rather unusual and strange incident and actually unique incident in the life of Jesus. Just to fill you in with some of the details, it's actually the Monday before 
Jesus is crucified. It's the day after Palm Sunday, as we call it, the day after Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey. Jesus has been staying with his friends, Martha and Mary and Lazarus, just outside the city in the village or the town of Bethany, a few miles outside the city. When we pick up the story, Jesus is about to enter the city, and Mark tells us in his account, although Matthew puts it in a different chronological order, that Jesus is about to go to the temple and cleanse the temple. He's about to drive out the money changers and those who are practicing dishonesty in the temple. Jesus is hungry. He's, he's, he's a human, a real human, and he gets hungry. And He's probably been up, up half the night praying. We don't know, but that's very likely knowing Jesus. He's, it's early in the morning, and he's walking towards the city over the Mount of Olives, and he sees a fig tree growing beside the road. Fig trees were very common in Israel at the time. Jesus sees the tree and he goes and looks for a snack, looks for some figs to give him some energy to continue his busy day. The fig tree has lots of leaves on it. So if there are lots of leaves on a fig tree, it suggests that there might be fruit to be found. In Jerusalem, fig trees normally get their leaves in the spring, in March or April, around this time of year, actually, and they produce figs, their main crop, in late summer, so I'm told. When Jesus came into Jerusalem, it was the time of Passover. It was in the spring, and apparently this tree was in full leaf. We're told, I think Mark tells us, it was not the season for figs. So why was Jesus looking for figs on this tree when it was not the season for figs? Well, there are lots of theories about this. Some people have suggested that there would have been most probably some small baby figs on the tree at that time of year. They weren't fully developed, but they could still be taken as a kind of snack um, even though they weren't fully grown at that time. So maybe that's what Jesus was looking for. He expected to find some of these baby green figs on the tree when he passed the tree on the way into the city. But whatever the case, he went to the tree, he lifted up the leaves, and he didn't find a single fig on that tree. And what he does is he does a very strange thing, doesn't he? He curses the tree. He says, may nobody ever eat fruit from you again. May you never bear fruit again, as it puts it in Matthew's Gospel. What's so strange about this incident? I think this is the only time in, in the whole Gospel, in the Gospels, where we see Jesus performing a destructive miracle. Most of his miracles were in serving the purpose of helping people relieving suffering. Sometimes they were providing food, as in the case of, of feeding the 5,000. Often they were involved delivering people from demons or sicknesses. Sometimes they were there just to show the power of Jesus. Think about him walking on water, for example. 
But this is probably the only, only um, miracle that Jesus does which actually destroys a living thing. The nearest parallel I can, I can find, I suppose, is when Jesus drove out the demons from, you know, legion from the demoniac, the demon-possessed man, and they, they rushed off and went into the pigs, and the pigs were all drowned. But even then, it wasn't actually Jesus killing the pigs. It was the demons that possessed them which caused them to be drowned. This is the only miracle we know of that we're told about where Jesus actually uses his power to curse a living thing. I want to ask you the question today, why did Jesus do this apparently strange act? And I think there there are probably at least three potential reasons why Jesus could have done this. And let me talk you through them now. So some people would, would, would hear about this incident and would say, well, is Jesus just getting angry with the tree for no reason? I mean, it wasn't really, wasn't really the tree's fault, was it? Because it wasn't even the season for figs. You could hardly blame the tree for not producing fruit when it wasn't the season for fruit. Did Jesus just get annoyed and lash out with his power and cause the tree to die, to wither from the roots? Well, of course... That's not in the character of Jesus, is it? Just to get angry, to lash out, to use his power to cause harm to a living entity. I think it's impossible, or very unlikely at least, that Jesus would have not known that there were no fruits on that tree when he approached that tree. I mean, to all intents and purposes, he came there looking for fruit, but he must have known that there would have been no fruit at that time of year. Unless, of course, he was looking for those green baby figs. Jesus was a Galilean man. I'm sure every man in Galilee and in the whole country knew that you didn't find figs or fully developed figs in the spring. And perhaps, although Jesus did lay aside some aspects of his omniscience, when he became a human being, I mean, omniscience means his all-knowing power, the power to know all things. If you read the gospel, we see so many instances where Jesus shows his omniscient power. He knows what's going to happen. He knows what's in the heart of a person. He knows about the cross. So I think it's highly unlikely that Jesus would have not known that there were no figs on the tree. I think he would have known that anyway. So it's, it's very unlikely he would have just gone there and, and been shocked and disappointed and angry at the tree because he didn't know there were figs there. And as I said, this was completely out of character for Jesus to, to harm something just because he was angry and wanted to lash out and use his power to destroy something. So that's the first possibility. It could be that Jesus just got angry with the tree. And it's a completely random act with no particular purpose. But I think that's, that's almost impossible to countenance. The second possibility is that Jesus cursed this tree and made it die because he intended to teach his disciples an important lesson about prayer and faith. And on the surface, that seems to be the most likely explanation, doesn't it? 
It says in verse 20, the disciples were absolutely amazed that the tree had withered so quickly. They asked him the question, how did the fig tree wither so quickly? Given the amazing miracles the disciples had already seen Jesus perform, the, the killing of a tree didn't seem that spectacular. To us, it doesn't seem that spectacular compared to some of the things they'd seen. But I suppose they'd never seen anything quite like this before. Jesus uses, uses the opportunity to teach them some lessons. So if you look at verses 20 to 21 and 22, he starts to talk to them about faith. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. If you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go and throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. I think sometimes I wrestle with these verses, and perhaps you have as well, because they can seem a bit problematic. We all know that that perhaps there are some Christians who misuse these verses, get carried away by these verses. And in fact, we we pray a lot, don't we? And, And often our experience tells us that we don't always get everything we pray for. We don't always get everything we ask God to do for us in prayer. Jesus makes an absolutely amazing promise to his disciples. When you you actually consider these words, how amazing is it if this is true, what Jesus is offering his followers? Will God really give us absolutely anything we ask for if only we believe it enough? If we take these verses seriously, can we expect to do and see spectacular miracles being performed in our day and age? If only we take these verses to heart. There's a real danger, isn't there? When we we hear verses like this, that we get completely carried away, we lose our heads. We start claiming all kinds of wild things that our flesh would like us to have. Say to God, you promised this. If I believe this enough, you'll give me this. What happens if we don't get those things? It's a very real danger that people become disillusioned. They say either God was not telling, Jesus was not telling us the truth, or perhaps I don't have enough faith to believe these things will be given to me. But today I want to explore a few checks and balances which we can apply to this, these, this promise which will help us not to get carried away, which will help us to understand perhaps better what Jesus actually means by these verses. Because they're absolutely true, 100%. This promise is for us. But how do we understand it in the context of Scripture? So let's put them in a bit of context by looking at some of these checks and balances. The first question I want to ask us is that did Jesus really expect the disciples, the apostles, and Christians to move mountains by faith, exercised in prayer. In the Old Testament, there are examples, aren't there, of great miraculous events taking place which affected nature. The first one that comes to mind to me is is the parting of the Red Sea. That was a truly amazing miracle. 
where nature itself was affected by the power of God. Of course, there's the, the incident, the time when Elijah prayed for no rain and there was no rain, and then he prayed for rain and there was rain. We, we read about that, don't we, in James chapter 5, talking about the power of effective prayer. The prayer of a righteous man avails much. The, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective, we might say. So there are in, in, instances in Scripture, in the Old Testament, of nature bending to the power of God. I don't recall any mountains being thrown into the sea, but there were definitely spectacular and amazing things done by the power of God. But in the New Testament, in the apostolic age, although we read about miracles, we don't read about these great cataclysmic, earth-shattering miracles taking place in the same way. There's no record of Paul or Peter or John or any of the apostles doing any of these great miracles, moving mountains, making the sea part, making it rain or not rain. When Jesus talks about moving mountains, he was using a common rabbinical teaching method, using hyperbole or exaggeration to make a point, a teaching point. And the disciples would have understood this. He wasn't talking about literally moving mountains. Why would God want you to move a mountain anyway? But he was taking the biggest, most immovable, most permanent object imaginable to the disciples, the mountain. In fact, they were standing on the Mount of Olives when he was saying this, probably. And he was inviting them to envisage this great, huge mountain somehow being uprooted and casting itself into the Dead Sea, probably, which wasn't too far away. And you could just imagine that and envisage that great event taking place. No human power, not even the might of imperial Rome, could have achieved such a feat. And even today, with our modern technology and machinery, to move a mountain intact is impossible. I mean, you can, you can demolish a mountain, but you can't move it you know, entirely in one piece, intact to another place. But Jesus says, you know, by the power of prayer, even something as immovable as this mountain, as solid as, as this mountain, could be moved by the power of God. The point he's making is not that he wants his people literally to move mountains or to do similar spectacular feats. The point he's making is that faith-filled prayer, the prayer of a person who believes that God has the power and the willingness to do something, is very effective and can do absolutely amazing things. There's no limit, in fact, to the power of prayer, what God can achieve, what God can bring about. So we need to be very careful to understand this is not literally talking about moving mountains or doing other similar feats. It's it's a figure of speech. It's hyperbole Jesus is using. The second check, check or balance that we need to apply to this promise of Jesus that he'll do anything we ask, God will do anything we ask if we only believe and pray, is to ask the question, to whom was Jesus actually speaking when he said these words? 
we're often very quick, aren't we, to claim the promises of the Bible for ourselves as believers today. And of course, all these promises do have something to say to us. and Many of them are for us. But we forget, don't we, that Jesus was speaking these words first and foremost to his disciples, to his apostles, to the twelve. Over, over the course of our journey through Matthew, we've seen that the, the disciples, the apostles, were given privileges and responsibilities that are not given to all Christians. In Matthew 16, if you remember, we talked about the binding and loosing ministry of the apostles. They had, had a special commission and special privileges and powers to lay the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. In the book of Acts, we see the apostles doing extraordinary miracles which validated the gospel, validated their ministry. Uh, They healed the sick and they did many other wonderful things. They even raised the dead, although they didn't actually move mountains. Paul said said in 2 Corinthians, I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, including signs, wonders and miracles. It's an interesting fact and much overlooked in the church today that signs and miracles and wonders and supernatural power in the New Testament was, were actually the marks of a true apostle. These were signs that accompanied apostleship. If everyone in the whole church, if every Christian had been doing signs and miracles and wonders all the time, how would anybody have known who were the true apostles? How could you distinguish them from anybody else in the church if everybody was doing these miracles? But Paul says, no, these, these signs, these great, wonderful things that, that we can do, that God has enabled us to do, are proof that we are truly apostles called by God, commissioned by Christ. We need to remember the apostles were a unique group. We don't have apostles today. The teaching, the promise of this kind of prayer was first and foremost for them. I want you to hear me correctly. It's not just for them, but first and foremost, it was for them. Please don't be discouraged if you cannot do the kinds of things that, that the apostles were doing in the book of Acts. We do have Christians who, who believe it's possible and try hard to do these kinds of things, but actually, those apostles had a unique calling and a unique ministry. And you should not be discouraged if you cannot do these things in the same way as they did. I also want to make another point about the apostles. Often we see them doing miracles. Although they didn't always do miracles all the time. But when they did do miracles, we don't often see them praying for the sick to be healed or for the dead to be raised. We do see it sometimes. We just see them do the miracle. They say the word and the person is raised or the person is healed. But these miracles did not come out of a vacuum. I'm convinced that the apostles spent a huge amount of time in private prayer, seeking the Lord, seeking his will, being filled with the Spirit, praying for opportunities, praying for the wisdom and discernment of God, praying for the Holy Spirit to lead them to situations where they could exercise the power of God and preach the gospel. So don't think that these, prayer, these, these miracles just came out of nowhere. They came, came from a life of devotion, a life of prayer, 
probably the kind of faith-filled prayer that Jesus is speaking about here. These people have spent time with God seeking his will, praying for those opportunities, and then taking them when they came. I want you to also realise that the apostles in the book of Acts, in the New Testament, although they had this promise of Jesus, they themselves didn't, didn't always pray their way out of every situation. There are instances in the book of Acts where we see the apostles in great danger and we don't see them necessarily calming the storm. So, for example, Paul was on the, on the ship in a sh- and there was, there was a terrible storm raging for days and days and he didn't, he didn't say in Jesus' name, pray and believe that the storm would be stilled. So even though this promise was theirs, they, there were still limitations. There were still times when, when they bent themselves to the power of God and the sovereignty of God in situations. They didn't always just pray their way miraculously out of every situation. So I guess the point I'm making is this, that this, this prayer, this promise of Jesus was, was primarily, first and foremost, for the apostles. And we see them exercising this kind of power supernatural power in the apostolic age which we don't live in anymore another check or balance we can apply to this promise of prayer and I think this is an important one is we we have to ask the question does God really give human beings the right to instruct him and tell him what to do because you might, you might read this verse and say, well, Jesus is saying that we have the power to tell God whatever we want him to do, and God is like some kind of genie, you know, like Aladdin and his lamp. And God is there just waiting to obey whatever command we give him. You know, your, your wish is my command. Is that really true? Can that be true of God? That God is, is a willing servant just waiting for his creatures to tell him what to do? As you might you might you know, defer from this verse. Infer from this verse, sorry. I've asked this question already. When Jesus says, whatever you ask for, you will receive, does he literally mean anything at all in the whole world? No wish is too great. No desire is too much for God to grant. If you're a parent here today, I want to ask you the question. Would you give your children an offer like this? Would you say to your children, ask me whatever you want, literally anything. If it's in my, in my, within my means to do so, I'll do it for you. If you had teenage children, would you do that? You'd offer them absolutely anything you want, they wanted. I think probably, if you're being honest, you wouldn't offer them that. And the reason is because you know they might ask for things, they probably would ask for things that were not in line with your purposes for them, things that were not good for them, things that they would misuse, things which could damage your family, things which they could use to damage themselves. You do not give irresponsible people, I'm not saying your children are irresponsible, but but children by nature haven't learned, have they, sometimes, how to use things they're given wisely or to ask for wise things. Some adults are like that as well. You do not entrust this kind of promise to give people anything they want 
to people who are foolish or to people who are selfish or to people who will misuse that promise. If you could trust your children to only ask for things which are good for them, to only ask for things that would serve the family well, you might indeed feel confident to promise them anything they asked. Because you have a relationship with them, you know them, you trust them, you know they will not ask you for anything which you would not be willing to give. It's very important when we hear this promise of Jesus to give us what we ask for in prayer, to remember that Jesus is entrusting this not to worldly people, not to ungodly people, not to people who will just use it to pursue their own agendas, to satisfy their lusts, but he entrusts this to men who who follow him, who who will ask for the things that God will be pleased to grant. Dear friends, God does not answer selfish or sinful prayers. The Bible makes that clear. If you turn to James, the book of James, which actually tells tells us a lot about prayer, James chapter 4, verse 3. James talks about this. He says, when what he calls adulterous people, worldly people, ask God for things they want, they do not receive because they ask for wrong motives that they may spend what they get on their pleasures. I think as Spurgeon put it, these people want God to join them in, in the service of their lusts. If you are asking for wrong motives, that you just want to spend what you get on your pleasures, you can pray till you're blue in the face. You won't receive anything from God. God will not be prepared to answer that kind of prayer. So you see, this, this promise to give us anything is qualified by the need to, to, to pray in line with the will of God. Because God will not grant, as I just said, sinful and selfish things to people which will ruin them and bring disgrace on his name. When King Solomon um, was crowned, just after that, God asked him, he said, what do you want? I'll give you anything you want. And when when God said that, it's it's, it's implicit, it's not actually stated, but I I don't believe God would have given Solomon anything, literally anything, if it was sinful or wicked, or against the purposes of God. Solomon, of course, asked for wisdom, which was a wise thing to ask for, and God was only too pleased to grant him his request, and he blessed him in other ways as well. There's an implicit understanding in Scripture that we pray in line with the will of God. We don't pray for sinful things and expect to be heard. It's a bit similar to this, this question. Can God do anything at all? Is, is, is nothing impossible for God? Well, of course, in a sense, nothing is impossible for God. God can do all things. God is almighty and all-powerful. But let me ask you this question. Can God tell a lie? Can God deceive people? Can God practice wickedness? And You say, of course not. How can you say, say something so, so horrible? Of course God could not tell a lie because he's God, he's, he's holy, he's righteous. 
You see, there are, there are, in a sense, limitations to what God can do. Because God can only be true to his character. He, he, will not, he cannot do anything which is not true to his holy character. In the same way, as I've just said, with prayer, when, although God offers us anything in prayer, he cannot give us things which, which, which contradict his own holy character and his own purposes. John says in one of his letters, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And as I said just a few minutes ago, God entrusts this promise to people that he knows will be faithful and use this promise wisely. So he entrusts it not to the worldly, not to the ungodly, but to his children, to his followers, to people that have put their trust in his son, have been born again, Love the Lord Jesus, whose hearts have been changed by the Holy Spirit, who are new creatures in Christ. He calls these people by grace into his service. So rather than us being, God being our servant, we Christians are God's servants. He fills us with his spirit, gives us the task of building his kingdom. We're engaged in his business. We're enlisted in his service. We abide in Christ. We abide in the vine. We seek to bear fruit for his glory. That's the kind of people that Jesus has given this promise to. And God has no qualms at all about answering the prayers of these people because he knows they will pray the kinds of prayers that he will be pleased to answer. God answers the prayers of those whose hearts are set on his glory, not on their own selfish, sinful, wicked agendas. When we pray this kind of bold prayer that Jesus tells us to pray, and we should pray boldly, dear friends, we should also pray this, your kingdom come, your will be done. That should direct the kinds of prayers that we pray. So these people, we're to pray for mighty things, but in line with God's will, for the, for the extension of his kingdom, that his will might be done. It's not a matter of us telling God what we think he should do, and God just doing whatever we say, but rather praying for understanding of God's will, of seeking God earnestly and say, Father, what would you have me pray for? Please show me what you would want to do in these days and let me pray in accordance with your will because dear friends we we don't know do we if it it was left to us if it were left to us how could we dictate to God what a mess we would be in if God gave us everything we asked for based on our own human wisdom and understanding we do need to look at situations in the life of the church, in our individual private lives, and, and ask God, Lord, what would you have us do in the situation? What would you have us pray for? Give us understanding. Give us wisdom. Give us comprehension. Give us a knowledge of your will that we might pray in a way that you might be pleased to answer. We don't have this kind of carte blanche kind of right to ask God Demand of God everything that, that we want him to do. We have to go to him and say, Father, you are, you are Lord. 
we are your children, what would you have us pray for? What would you have us do? What would you be seeking to do in these days? So, as I just, let me just remind you of what I just said. God entrusts this promise to those that are, that are faithful to pray in accordance with his will. I do think sometimes we, we wrestle with this, particularly in our, in our kinds of churches, with this idea of prayer. I think we find it difficult to pray sometimes and be confident of the outcome. We're quite good at asking God to do things, but not so good at really believing and trusting that God will do what we've prayed and asked him to do. And we have to ask the question, why is that? Are we, are we afraid that perhaps God won't answer our prayers? Are we afraid that we're not praying in line with his will? We often, when we pray, we often add the condition, don't we? We say, you know, Lord, if it be your will, if it's your will for this to happen, we pray. We don't say, Lord, we, we, we claim this, we want this. We say, Lord, if it's your will for this to happen, please let it be so. I think that's a right statement to pray because it confesses, it acknowledges that we lack wisdom. It expresses humility that we are not God, we are his servants. It expresses reluctance to, to charge ahead with our own limited wisdom and try to claim things which God has not promised us. But having said that, the Bible makes it clear and Jesus makes it clear, and this is 100% for us, that God rewards bold prayer. God rewards faith, those who come to him in faith. And we, we have to wrestle a bit with how this actually works in our prayer life, but God does answer bold prayer. And as I, as I said about the apostles, prayer does not exist in a vacuum. Those kinds of prayers that God answers, as I said about the apostles, do not just come randomly. They come as a result of hours of private prayer, of seeking the Lord, of a relationship with him. Think about Jesus. He himself, we know, spent a lot of time praying himself, seeking the Father's will, even though he was the Son of God, because he was the Son of God. And those miracles that he did were no doubt the result of private prayer, many hours of seeking God. Sometimes I think we do need to pray more as believers that God would show us what his will is, that he would give us a confidence to pray for a particular course of action. Sometimes we say, Lord, we, we just don't know what you want to do in this situation. You know, our sister is sick. We don't know whether you want to heal our sister. What would you have us pray for? We need to pray with that wisdom of the Holy Spirit and pray that God would give us a, a great conviction of what we should be praying for. Of course, having said that, there are times when God never gives us a clear indication of what his, his purposes are in a situation. He doesn't divulge it all to us. But I think we, we should be expecting more to pray with this sense of God's guidance, the Holy Spirit leading us in prayer and showing us what kind of prayers that we could pray with this kind of boldness that Jesus envisages here, you know, believing, the, believing it will be done for you because the Lord has already put it on our hearts to, to seek him in this matter. 
And what this verse does teach us, what this promise teaches us, is that we should put no limits on God's willingness or God's ability to answer our request. God is, as we've said, as we know, God is all-powerful. No situation is too hard for him to overcome, to change. Sometimes we need to persevere in prayer. It's not just a one-off act. We need to keep on knocking on that door. But we do need to be bold. We need to claim the promises of Scripture. We need to pray those promises. We need to ask God, say, Lord, you, you said you would do this. Please do this. There always has to be this sense that we, we don't fully know what God's will is in a situation unless God gives us a very clear conviction, which he sometimes does. But we should pray with boldness. Dear friends, let me remind you of the importance of prayer. I think sometimes the church in the West, so many churches have such a, a limp, insipid prayer life, and so many Christians do, and my prayer life is far from satisfactory as well. But the Bible makes it clear, however, however this works with the sovereignty of God, the Bible makes it clear that mighty and humanly impossible things can be achieved through fervent, bold, persevering prayer that lay hold of God's promises, which unleashes his power. Let us not pray feeble, weak little prayers. Sometimes that's all we can pray when we're struggling, but let's pray these bold prayers, not just telling God what to do, but seeking him and then praying in accordance with his will as we understand it. And expecting great things from God. Because if you don't expect God to really answer these prayers, what's the point in praying at all? We trust and pray that God will exalt his son's name, will build his kingdom, will do mighty things through prayer. So be encouraged to continue in prayer and pray boldly with faith. You might, <laughs> you might want to pause now and have a five-minute break, but there's one more lesson, an important lesson I think we can learn from this passage. So I've given you two reasons why Jesus could have cursed the fig tree. One, it could have been a random act with no particular meaning, which I don't think is true at all. Secondly, it could be deliberately done to illustrate the importance of prayer. But I think there's also another implicit reason why Jesus chose to do this. And that's because he wanted to use the fig tree as a kind of visual parable, an illustration of faithless and fruitless Israel. So as I've said already, Jesus, Mark's account of this story tells us that Jesus did this, this feat of killing the fig tree, of cursing the fig tree, before he went to Jerusalem to cleanse the temple. And the disciples saw it on the way back, or actually the next morning, I think it was, on the Tuesday morning in the way to the, on the way to the city, they saw the fig tree had withered. And I think there's a very interesting parallel, and many, many um, Bible teachers and Bible scholars believe this, there's a parallel between the cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple that might not immediately be apparent at first glance. To understand this, we have to go to the Old Testament and look at some of the references to the fig tree in the prophets. So if you go to Micah chapter 7, the prophet Micah, one of the minor prophets, the, the prophet talks about coming to the land and looking 
for fruit on the fig tree, but looking for figs and finding none and expressing the disappointment and actually the misery of coming to the tree and not finding any fruit. This is Micah chapter 7, verse 1. What misery is mine? I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. The faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains. So Micah, the prophet, compares going to look for figs on a fig tree and finding none with going to the people of Israel and finding that there was none righteous, that the land was unfruitful, that the land was wicked and barren in terms of the kind of heart righteousness that God is seeking from his people. It says you know, in quite stark terms, the faithful have been swept from the land, not one upright person remains. It's also another passage which talks about the fig tree in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 8, verse 13. This is talking about God's judgment upon his land, the covenant judgment of God for his disobedient people, which God warned them about. He said, if you disobey me and break my covenant, this will happen to you. I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine. There will be no figs on the tree, and their leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken completely from them. You've got two symbolic concepts from the Old Testament which help us to understand the symbolic significance of Jesus cursing the fig tree. It wasn't just a random act. It wasn't just a, you know, Jesus getting angry with the tree and cursing it for no reason. He was doing it to, to prove a very important, to illustrate a very important spiritual point. The tree had been in leaf. It promised much, it promised fruit, but actually was barren. Because of this, Jesus cursed it and it withered and died instantly. In the same way, when Jesus comes to the temple, Israel's long-awaited Messiah comes looking for fruit in the heart of the nation, in the temple, looking for the, the, the heart righteousness that God is pleased by finding none finding the temple barren you can imagine the temple in Jerusalem at Passover time in particular full of smoke from sacrifices and activity and noise and bustle and ostentatious public prayers and religiosity hordes of pilgrims and buying and selling of animals and doves and like the fig tree in leaf, it, it advertised to the nations, this is a place where you, you can find righteousness. This is a place where you can find people serving God, the true and living God. When Jesus gets to the temple, despite the appearances of religious life and fervor, what does he find? Sacrilege, corruption, wickedness, unrighteousness and ultimately rejection of himself as Messiah. We've got, you know, a few days later we end up with this culmination of this rejection of Jesus and, you know, consequently a rejection of God himself. 
The people shouting, crucify him, crucify him, calling, baying for the blood of their Messiah that God had sent to them. Now, of course, that was in, within the will of God that Jesus should die on the cross for the sins of his people. But how sad that he should come, Messiah should come to the temple and find a people who were very religious, but whose hearts were far from him. Not one righteous person was to be found well, amongst the, 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 the leadership and the elite anyway, apart from a few exceptions. Corporately, they had turned away from God into wickedness. And because of that, God himself would strike Judaism with a curse. It would be cut off from God. And we, we, we know about this in AD 70, you know, not that many years later. The Romans came and destroyed Jerusalem. They absolutely obliterated the city, destroyed the temple. Not one stone was left on another. They laid waste to it, killed hundreds of people, thousands of people, and the rest were scattered amongst the nations. It's a very sad story. Jesus himself weeps over Jerusalem. They do not recognize the time of God's coming to them. The cursing of the fig tree is a symbol of Jerusalem and Israel being cut off, in a sense, from God, from his promises, from his purposes. Over the next few weeks, we'll be learning more about this, about the the kingdom being taken away from them and given to others who will bear its fruit, who would bear its fruit. So... This, this picture of the fig tree being cursed is a very vivid picture of Israel, what would happen, this, this nation that was supposed to bear spiritual fruit, but actually was found wanting, and was therefore cut off, that it would never bear fruit again. Now, of course, let me just say that the Jewish people are still as with all of us, welcome to believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus and be saved. And it may well be that God still has plans and purposes for the people of Israel, you know, the children of Abraham in that sense, in a physical sense, although Christians are the true children of Abraham, Christians comprised of Jew and Gentile, one new man in Christ. So, we should still pray for the Jewish people as we, we pray for everyone. We pray that they would turn to their Messiah and believe in him and receive grace and mercy. Um, that offer is available to all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus. But in terms of the temple, in terms of Israel as a, as a nation in that place, at that time they were cut off and dispersed because they did not receive the Lord Jesus. They did not produce the fruit that God had prepared them to produce. I wanted to call the sermon today, What Can We Learn from a Dead Tree? What can a dead tree teach us? What can a fig tree outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago teach us today in Brighton in 2020 during this coronavirus I think there are important lessons that we can take from this. 
Dear friends, it's a very sad thing, isn't it, when God comes looking, in a sense, for fruit amongst his people and finds none. One of the marks of true conversion, of saving faith, is that you will, to some extent, bear the kind of fruit that pleases God. It's impossible for a genuine Christian, I believe, I think the Bible teaches this, it's impossible for you as a genuine Christian not to bear any fruit at all in your life. I'm talking about the kind of heart righteousness, the heart goodness and holiness that comes from a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have no fruit at all, then it's very likely you're not converted, you're not a true Christian. It is true that we don't always bear as much fruit in our lives as we should do. But there should be something to show evidence of true and saving faith. But I do believe this, that there are professing Christians and there are professing churches and perhaps even nations that have received so many blessings of God over the centuries, so many opportunities to bear fruit, almost like the ideal conditions, everything necessary for them to be in a good place, to bear spiritual fruit, the kind of fruit that God delights in. And yet when God looks at those churches, he casts his eye over those churches, in his analysis, those churches and those Christians and those nations are barren and fruitless. There is nothing to show. They had the reputation of being alive, but actually are dead. Before, let me just clarify, I'm not not actually thinking of any individual churches or people, I'm just talking generally about the world we live in. There are professing believers who have the appearance of religious activity, whatever spectrum they're on of religious belief, evangelicals, non-evangelicals, but actually closer inspection reveals there's no fruit or little fruit, or perhaps no fruit at all, the kind of fruit that God is looking for, that God wants. To whom much has been given, much will be expected. Think about the promises and privileges that Israel had been given, the covenants, the prophets, the law, the temple, before that the tabernacle. God had always been faithful to his people. And God had done everything necessary to make them a fruitful nation. But sadly, because of their their disobedience, and we're no better than them, it didn't materialize. Jesus came to the tree and expressed perhaps disappointment there was no fruit to be found on that tree. In the same way, when God looked at his people and found no fruit, it was disappointing. I want you to think about your life I don't mean this in a kind of guilt trip way, but I think this is an important question for us because, to be honest, all of us probably feel that we don't produce enough fruit as Christians, and that's probably true. This is not supposed to make us feel guilty, but it is an important question. Given the resources that God has given me, given the opportunities that God has given me, given the promises that God has given me, given the time that God has given me, given the the many years of Christian teaching that I've received, given, you know, whatever privileges we've received as Christians, what have we got to show for it? Are we bearing a rich harvest for God? People would look at our life and see an abundance of good fruit, heart 
righteousness. I'm not talking so much about religious activity, although, of course, Christian love expresses itself in service and devotion to the Lord and being part of a church and all these things. But those things themselves do not constitute spiritual fruit. But are we producing the kind of harvest that that should be expected given the blessings and privileges that God has given us over the years? Or are we, if, if we're quite honest, nothing more than a bunch of leaves that promise a lot but deliver very little? I believe that a lot of potential fruitfulness in the lives of Christians, even amongst true Christians who do love the Lord Jesus in these days, a lot of that fruitfulness has been compromised, has been diluted by distractions, compromises, worldliness, things that have taken away our spiritual zeal, especially over these last however many years we've lived a fairly comfortable life many of us one day dear friends the lord jesus will come very soon actually probably the lord jesus will come and he will examine our lives and he will look for fruit i think the wise thing to do in these days and this is an ideal opportunity during this time of crisis is to look at our lives and ask god to shine his light onto our lives and to convict us and to show us. Is there anything in my life that's hindering me from being a fruitful Christian? Is there anything that I need to put right in my life which would enable me to grow in fruitfulness? Because it's far better to do that today, to do it now, than to wait until the Lord Jesus comes back. May God be be gracious to us. We need God's help so much, don't we, in these things. But I pray that none of us will be found a fruitless tree that promised much but delivered little. Lord, make us fruitful. Make us a fruitful people. Help us, Lord, to exhibit the kind of fruit that you want, that you're looking for. Work that in us, we pray. Help us to abide in the vine, in the Lord Jesus. May we we be abundantly fruitful as individual Christians, as a church. We pray, Lord, that you would, we would not waste the privileges and opportunities you've given us, but make full use of them. Lord, we also pray that you would help us to pray with that kind of bold and fervent prayer, having sought your will, confessing that you are Lord and not us. That we might pray and see prayers answered in these days, mighty things, amazing things, hearts and lives changed for the glory of God, in line with your will and purposes. Amen. Just read a poem to finish. I don't know who wrote this poem, it wasn't me, but I think this is um, something to ponder. Nothing but leaves. The spirit grieves over a wasted life. Sin committed while conscience slept. Promises made but never kept. Hatred, battle and strife, nothing but leaves. Nothing but leaves, no garnered sheaves of life's fair ripened grain. Words, idle words, for earnest deeds, we sow our seeds. Lo, at tears and weeds, we reap with toil and pain, nothing but leaves. Nothing but leaves, 
Memory weaves no veil to screen the past as we retrace our weary way, counting each lost and misspent day, we find sadly at last nothing but leaves. And shall we meet the master so, bearing our withered leaves? The saviour looks for perfect fruit. We stand before him, humbled mute, waiting the word he breathes. Nothing but leaves. Dear friends, I anticipate better things in your case things that accompany salvation. May God bless us. May God be gracious to us. Pray that you have a good week, you remain strong, and that God makes you abundantly fruitful. Bless you all. Amen. So we'll sing our final hymn, which is As the Deer Pants for Water, and you'll see those words on the screen, and they're attached to the audio file, but please... Think about these words which talk about the devotion that we Christians should have for our Lord Jesus.